0: pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word, and we pray that you would teach us today. Any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away, but may your word remain. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to you. During my last week uh, of the month off, I was privileged to take a personal spiritual retreat. Spent three days in the White Mountains out in eastern Arizona. And of course, uh, as you know, in order for that to happen, it meant that my wife Christy had to care for our three children on her own for that time. So when I returned, what I wanted to do was to, to do what I could to return the favor, as much as I could. So the next day, I told her she could have the whole day to herself, I would care for the kids, and we wouldn't bother her at all. Morning went pretty well. Around lunchtime, the kids wanted to go outside and play in the kiddie pool, and uh, there had been some yard work that I'd put off, some yard work that I needed to, to get done, and so I thought, hey, this is a great time to trim one of the bushes while the kids swam. So I rushed to the garage, pulled out my hedge trimmer, started to cut back this really overgrown bush, and things were going fine until the three kids decided that watching Daddy trim the hedge was more exciting than playing in the pool. Well, they got close, and I allowed them to watch, and I just said, you just need to make sure to stay back. And then I kept trimming, and being the wonderful multitasker that I am, I soon learned that it was a mistake to try and trim hedges and to parent at the same time. You see, in my distracted state, I let my hand get too close to the blades and I cut my middle finger. I ran inside. I didn't know how deep it was, but I knew it was bad enough for blood to be gushing into my other hand as I ran, yelling, Chris Day! She got me a towel to wrap up my hand. I told her I needed to go to urgent care. I was sure I needed stitches. She got the kids ready. I laid dizzy on the ground until we got in the van and drove away. And eventually, I came home with three stitches in my right finger and a bruised ego. So much for having the whole day to herself and not being bothered by us. Let's just say that while I had tried to pay back that debt to Christy, I've still got some work to do. This morning we are going to talk about debts. We're going to talk about debts because Jesus talks about debts and he has some really interesting things, important things to teach us about debt. We'll be looking at the gospel passage from Matthew chapter 18 verses 21 to 35. Before we read that passage, let's just set the scene a little bit. In Matthew chapter 18 as a whole, Jesus is with his disciples And he's teaching them on a number of different topics, kind of like a shotgun. And after he's just finished talking about what to do when another believer sins against you, here in our passage, verses 21 to 35, the Apostle Peter responds to what Jesus has just said, and he has a question for Jesus. So let's begin with just verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? and I forgive him as many as 7 times. So what Jesus had taught them in verses 15 to 20, the passage immediately prior was that if a fellow Jew, a brother or sister sins against them, they should go to that brother or sister, seek out reconciliation, which would inevitably be required that they be willing to forgive that person, right? So it's reasonable that Peter would pose this question to Jesus. Jesus, if my brother sins against me multiple times, up to how many times should I go and forgive him? Like, what's the forgiveness quota that I need to reach before I can just write him off like I want to? Well, Peter actually suggests an answer to his own question. He says, as many as seven times? Now, to some of us, that may seem like a particularly low number. But let's be honest. Most of us probably have a hard time forgiving one time. To others of us, seven may just seem totally arbitrary. Like, where did you pull that number from, Peter? Well, the teaching of the Jewish rabbis at the time was actually that you should forgive your brother three times. So it turns out uh, Peter is actually shooting kind of high. He offers to double the rabbinic tradition plus one. And I know you've probably heard this before, but Peter would have known that this number seven also had spiritual significance. It was a number that, biblically speaking, represents, signifies, completeness. And so truly, I think my namesake idea is a good one, and I want to give him credit for that. It's a generous number, relatively speaking. Plus, as a bonus, it's spiritually meaningful. And so what does Jesus say? He says, Peter, you've outdone yourself. No, he doesn't say that. Let's look at what he does say in verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. All right, so let's recap. Forgiving one time is not easy for us. The rabbis raised that number to three. Peter ups the ante all the way to seven, and then Jesus goes all in, try 77. Jesus takes the number of completeness that Peter gives, and he adds another one of those numbers of completeness to it seven, seven. So Jesus' number is completely complete. That's hard to beat. Now, some biblical translations render this 70 times seven. That's actually not what the Greek says plainly, which is simply 77. However, truthfully, it doesn't really matter what your translation says, because if it's 77 or 70 times 7, Jesus' point is the same. The point that Jesus is making is not that there's actually a number out there which represents a forgiveness quota. What Jesus is saying is, forgive your brother as many times as he sins against you, as many times as it takes. Now, if you can imagine Jesus' disciples standing around, listening intently for how Jesus is going to respond to this question, as soon as Jesus gives the answer, what you would see, as long as they weren't wearing face masks, was a collective jaw drop. We who have heard this passage dozens of times before may not realize how incredibly radical Jesus is being here. Jesus is interpreting the Mosaic law and the character of God in a way that none of the religious leaders would have done. And frankly, who does this guy from Nazareth think that he is, that he should go against the entire consensus of rabbinic Judaism? Well, as we know, Jesus is himself the author of, and the fulfillment of the law, and the one who shares the very character of God. And so if anyone is qualified to offer a definitive interpretation, I think we'd want to say it's him. Now, Jesus is undoubtedly aware that his answer shocks his disciples, face masks or not. This is not the first time that Jesus had blown their minds, and frankly, it would not be the last And so what Jesus often does is to illustrate his teachings by telling stories, especially if those teachings are difficult to understand or difficult to accept. And so Jesus does that here. He turns to his gaping disciples and he tells them a parable. Now let's read the first part of how Jesus crafts this story in verses 23 to 27. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Jesus starts this parable by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus often does this. He he often speaks about God's kingdom and tells us what God's kingdom looks like using pictures we're familiar with. And so I want us to acknowledge just this one really important fact. Jesus isn't just illustrating his teaching for us so that we will understand it better, like sometimes I try and do in a sermon. Jesus is going one step further. He is actually telling us the kinds of things that happen and don't happen in God's kingdom. We'll return to this point as we go along. So, in the parable, Jesus tells us there's a king. And we would be right to expect, as Jesus' parables often go, that this king is likely going to represent God, who, of course, rules God's kingdom. Jesus tells us that this king in the parable wanted to settle accounts with his servants. In other words, the time had come for the king's servants to pay back the money that they owed him. Now, we don't know how these servants came to be in debt to this king, But we can all understand, or most of us at least, understand what it's like to have debts. We've got mortgages and car payments and student loans and perhaps even credit card payments. And What if one day all of our lenders decided to come and collectively collect what we owe them? Well, that's a bit like what is happening here. Sounds like, out of the blue, time for payment to be made in full. Verse 24 says that the servant, a servant, came before the king who had a particular debt to the tune of 10,000 talents. Now, it's it's actually difficult for us to estimate how much this is exactly as an equivalent in U.S. dollars. Some suggest as as little as a few million. Others suggest as much as hundreds of millions. Uh, But I want to give you a different angle on this. A talent was the largest denomination of currency in ancient Rome. Moreover, 10,000, that word, was the highest number which the Greek language had a specific word for at that time. So what Jesus is saying is this servant owes the king basically as much money as he could possibly owe him. It's as big of a debt as a Jew living in the Roman Empire could conceive of. So if Jesus were talking to us today he might, he might say something like $99 trillion. Maybe 999 is better. So the point is this. Knowing the exact number of what this servant owed the king isn't as important as knowing that it was the largest debt you can imagine. Well, when this servant comes to the king and he tells the servant that it's time to pay up, of course the servant can't produce the funds. And so what does the king do? He truly does what any just king would do. He orders the servant to be sold along with his wife and children and all of his possessions so that payment can eventually be made, although we know it will not be made. Now, we might see this as not just, but instead as barbaric and cruel. But would this not be a just way for a monarch to treat a servant Especially a servant with a massive unpaid debt. For whatever reason, the servant had a debt to the king. It was his debt, no one else's. He accumulated it. If his lender, who was also his sovereign, decided to collect, he would have every right. There is no injustice in this scenario, and we need to accept that. At least not yet. at hearing his sentence, the servant falls down on his knees and says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And this is a sad scene. I mean, the servant is pathetic. I mean, who racks up a debt of $999 trillion anyway? What kind of fool could spend that much money? And how could any man pay back the largest debt that anyone could owe? So when the servant says, be patient with me and I will pay it back, the king would know he's full of crap. It didn't matter how patient he was, the servant would never be able to pay it all back. It's an unpayable debt. And so it would have been absolutely just for that king to simply send the poor, pathetic fool away. It's not what this king does. Verse 27 says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. What king would do that? In what kingdom would that happen? Those are excellent questions. The kingdom of God is like a king who forgave a human being the largest debt that a human could owe. See, the king is a just king, but he's also a compassionate king. He would rather forgive than destroy. He would rather redeem a human soul than receive what he is owed. He would rather even pay the price himself. You see, because in this scenario... The servant may have not paid the debt, but someone did. The king paid a debt. He paid a debt he didn't owe, and it cost him 10,000 talents, as much as you could imagine. That is not justice. It's not justice, but it is unspeakable grace and mercy. What an amazing king this is. Now, Jesus could have ended the parable right here, and we would all have this beautiful picture of the loving compassion of God toward human beings. But Jesus didn't do that because it would have left Peter's answer unanswered, Peter's question unanswered. So let's look at what happens next in verses 28 to 30. Jesus continues the parable. When that same servant went out, leaving the king, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe." So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, "Have patience on me with me, and I will pay you." He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So after this servant leaves the royal throne room having just been forgiven by his sovereign for the largest debt that anyone could owe, he happens to run into another one of the king's servants and it turns out this servant actually owed money to the first servant. How convenient. Upon seeing this servant, the first servant gets enraged. And he grabs the guy, and he starts to choke him by the throat, pay me what you owe me. Now, how much, might we ask, did servant two owe servant one? A hundred denarii is what Jesus says. Now, one denarii is approximately uh, one day's labor for a a laborer. So, essentially, we're talking about a hundred days of a laborer's wages. If we were talking about that in terms of maybe our equivalent here, we may may think that $100 a day for a common laborer making minimum wage, therefore times 100 days, $10,000. That's not nothing. What happens next is deja vu. The servant with the debt, he falls down on his face. He pleads with his lender saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you. We've seen this scene before, right? But it's here that things start to diverge. How long would it have taken servant one to wait in order for servant two to pay him back? Presumably, servant two could have paid it back within 100 days of work. That is, if he didn't have any of it available to pay on this particular day. Now, that's not a short time for servant one to wait, but at least it is within the realm of possibility for servant two to pay back servant one, right? Well, Servant one wants nothing of it. He refuses to show pity. He refuses to show patience. He refuses to consider his own bank account, which now has 10,000 more talents in it than he ever should have. And instead, he takes his debtor down to the jail and he leaves him there until he could pay back the debt. Now, even if we forget what had just happened to servant one in the throne room of the king, we would still be able to tell that this guy is a bit of a you-know-what. But when we consider how this servant acted immediately after having received the most unmerited financial pardon that we can conceive of, it is then that we can see how extravagantly contemptible his behavior is. Contemptible. We, as the audience, as we hear Jesus telling this parable, it is at this point that in our hearts we begin to desire judgment on this servant. We can all see how unjust he is. We sympathize with servant number two, and we want to see servant one, punished, and that would be right. What should happen to someone like this guy? Let's find out in verses 31 to 34. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, the servant, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Don't you just hate it when someone tattletales on you I can remember getting so angry as a child when my sister would tell on me to my parents. Although, truthfully, as my sister would tell you, more often than not, it was the other way around. Turns out, Servant One is not a very covert guy. His fellow servants easily witness how he treats Servant Number Two, and who do they report it to but the king. And infuriated as he should be, the king calls for the servant to be brought before him and then he rips him a new one. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That was a rhetorical question, by the way. The king orders the servant to be jailed for his debts until he's paid off every single talent. And as we've said, since repayment of the debt would not be possible, the sentence here is as good as death. This guy gets what he deserves, right? And we should be happy with the way this parable ends. The good guy wins, the bad guy loses. Justice is served. That's the way it should be, right? Except that wasn't actually the end because I forgot a verse. Let me read that verse. Jesus says in verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It kind of changes my mood about this story. We knew that that God is like the king in this parable. What we didn't know until now is that we are like the servant. Whenever we do not forgive, we are just like the servant. Jesus is telling a story about us. Can that really be? Can that really be what Jesus' means, that my heavenly Father will do this to every one of you? I want to ask you this question. In the parable, how many times should the king have forgiven his servant? One? Three? Seven? Seventy-seven? Ten thousand? The answer is zero. The answer is zero. He literally owed the servant nothing. The servant owed him everything in turn. Now, let me ask you a slightly different question How many times should God forgive you? The answer to that question is also zero. Zero. See, the Bible is pretty unequivocal in its teaching that this is the human circumstance before God as a result of our open rebellion against him. And let's not uh, euphemize this. That's what sin is. Open rebellion. It is making other gods for ourselves and of ourselves and treating the one blessed triune creator as less than he is We owe God all that we have. And whenever we do not return that to him, our debt grows. How long have you been alive? How many days have you you made it without sinning in your heart against God Almighty? How big is your debt? Whether we want to believe it or not, All of us, without exception, the Scripture teaches, owe to God a debt that adds up to as much as we could possibly owe. We often compare ourselves to others, but it doesn't really matter because, you see, what we owe the Lord is nothing when compared to what we might owe one another. God owes us nothing, and we owe Him everything. And my brothers and sisters, this is actually the first part of the gospel, It's the bad news that precedes the good news. So what's the good news? Let's go back to the parable. When the servant begged for mercy, how many times did the king forgive the servant? Now, I've always thought the answer to that question was once. And so honestly, it never made sense to me why Jesus told the parable this way after having just talked to his disciples about forgiving 77 times. You see, as I read this parable, the parable seems to emphasize how big of an offense that the king forgave as opposed to how often the king forgave a repeat offender. Guess what I realized this week? A person does not acquire a debt of 10,000 talents all at once. The servant's debt was accumulated over time, talent by talent by talent by talent by talent, until he reached this unimaginable sum. And thus, the servant doesn't owe a debt, singular, as much as he owes debts, Many debts, plural. So the king isn't just forgiving the servant one time for 10,000 talents. Truly, it is like he is forgiving the servant 10,000 times, once for every talent. This is what God does for us. This is the good news that on the cross, Jesus Christ took all of our sins upon himself, and through that perfect sacrifice, God forgives us of our debts that we accumulate over the course of our lives, sin by sin. God forgives us at once of an unimaginable sum, and in so doing, he forgives us 10,000 times over. Does that make sense? Through this parable, Jesus is telling us about God's kingdom, and he's saying unforgiveness is the kind of thing that doesn't happen in God's kingdom. What happens in God's kingdom is that the king forgives you 10,000 times. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ and surrender your life to your true sovereign, God forgives you of everything, everything, everything. If God held anything against you, it would not be like His kingdom because unforgiveness does not happen in God's kingdom. Now, the beauty of the kingdom doesn't end there, you see, because unforgiveness doesn't happen in God's kingdom. Because of that, all of the kingdom's citizens must relinquish the unforgiveness that they themselves harbor in their heart if they wish to enter it. In God's kingdom, all is forgiven, yours and theirs. Every single Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. By grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, God forgives the debts of sin that we owe him. And thus, by grace, through faith in Christ, it is as much an act of faith, we forgive the debts of others which they owe us. Because here's the truth. As much as we've been hurt, as much suffering as we've experienced at the hands of other human beings, A human being could never owe you and me what you and I owe almighty God. Therefore, if God has forgiven your unforgivable debt, then how should you live? Jesus is very blunt in this parable. We don't often like to read Jesus' words when he talks like this. And yet, because he's so blunt, I think it is right for me to also do the same. If you claim to be a Christian, if you claim to have been saved from your infinite debt to God, and yet you are still unwilling to relinquish the debts that other people owe you, I don't doubt that you are living in some kingdom, but it is not God's. It is not God's kingdom. I want to urge you, as your pastor, treat this matter as seriously, as urgently, as your Lord and Savior does here in this passage. In this parable, Jesus gives us the imperative of forgiveness. We must forgive others because we have been forgiven by God, but I want us to not forget that God's forgiveness is also the empowerment for our own forgiveness. Meaning, we can, we are able, we have the power to forgive others because we have been forgiven. What joy and power comes from the recognition that all of our debts are canceled through the precious blood of Christ. Amen. That our death sentence is reversed And in its place, we have eternal life. That's not just. But it is unspeakable grace and mercy. If we have experienced the gospel, truly we will see that where we once had an immeasurable debt beyond forgiveness, now we have an immeasurable treasury from which to forgive. We won't run out of grace from which to forgive. So I want to simply call you into this prayer this week. Very simple prayer. And this is how I'll close Lord Jesus Christ, help me to live in the joy and power of your forgiveness. Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Amen.